Welcome to another episode of Bench Talk. I'm your host, Tom Gerrard. Uh, this week, I'm catching up with Melbourne-based chef Ben Shuri. Like, uh, Ben's a unique guest to the podcast. Like, even though he paints, he's not known for his paintings. Yeah, he's one of the most successful creatives I've had on the podcast. Uh, Ben's the head chef and owner of a restaurant called Attica. Uh, Attica isn't the everyday restaurant. It's uh, just been voted the best restaurant in Australasia and the 20th best restaurant in the world. Um, welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks, Tom. So Ben, you're a, a highly creative person. Um, like, were you creative as a kid or was it something that came to you in adulthood? Yeah, super creative child, um, but a super creative childhood. So I'm kind of more of a product of my environment than, um, than maybe especially creative as a kid. Um, you know, I grew up uh, with not a lot of money. Mum and dad were sheep and cattle farmers in uh, rural North Taranaki in uh, the North Island of New Zealand. Um, and in the 1980s and the late 1970s and 1980s, you know, farming was pretty tough. And um, my dad was an artist uh, pretty much his whole life, um, you know, and always created. Uh, and he always gave us the tools, um, both my mother, uh, my, my mother and my father gave us the tools to make our own fun, if you like. That was kind of the expectation, you know. It wasn't uh, the latest Transformer toy, perhaps, but there was a workshop filled with paint and tools and wood uh, there was a two and a half thousand acre farm where you could just run amok and go to the bush and you know go swimming in the creek or fish for white bait um, you know we go to the coast often um, harvest our dinner um, it's just a you know a really you know beautiful childhood where um, you know we didn't have much money but we never knew that we were kind of poor you know because i guess we were, always felt like we we're pretty rich in family spirit mm. so you were like our free-range children very much yeah very <laughs> very free-range and the only the real rule was that you know just don't um do anything that maybe stepped outside of what you know my parents moral um guide would be um and that was you know generally trying to be kind to people don't hurt animals ever um, and don't trash stuff, especially the environment. So I take that even though you, it was like don't hurt animals, you didn't grow up vegetarian or anything? No, I mean, when I say don't hurt animals, I'm, I mean, don't hurt animals unnecessarily because we were in the, uh, we're in the business of producing animals for meat. So, mm. um, but no, I'm definitely not vegetarian. No, dad hunted. Um, so our, our stable foods were, um, well, actually were a lot of vegetables, to be honest, because my mother is an avid gardener and had an incredible vegetable garden. Um, but uh, but then dad produced sheep and cattle. But then on the farm were goats and wild pigs and wild goats in the bush, and they needed to be hunted. Um, mm. But only for food, only take enough, only take what you need to eat. So my father's kind of uh, view on 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 shooting animals, especially in the wild, um, was that you know you take you take the animals so that you can continue to live. You know that's not for sport. It's so that you have food to eat food on the table to and don't waste anything so that you know that also transferred over into the coast as well where there were abalones we call them pawa in new zealand kinners sea urchins uh, pippies uh, crayfish mm -hmm. and so were you um like so when your father would bring home an animal from the day's hunting like you guys would use the whole thing and yeah you know, like like you know make stocks and just everything like yeah. in every way possible. Yeah, well, farms also have dogs, and they're working dogs that need to be fed as well. Mm. But um, but yeah, he would break him. He was a um a very amateur butcher, I must say, and I witnessed him uh, slaughter a good many uh, amount of um, beasts um, in his time. 
Um, and he wasn't the, it was definitely wasn't the fanciest butcher. I do recall one kind of gr- grisly meal, um, and he'd, uh, he'd, he'd butchered a cow and, um, and he'd cut a, a steak and he'd left a big artery, um, going in the steak. And as a, like, uh, 10 year old kid, I mean, it actually put me off meat probably until I was about 18 or 19. It really had a big psychological effect on me, eh? <laughs> So it wasn't always flash, that's for sure. But it was always, it was always, um, there was always plenty of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, like through through the time I've spent with you and the conversations we've had, like, you know, I speak to, like we speak about creativity a lot, and like, like you know, you don't, put, you know, put yourself out there as an artist, but you're a very creative person. Mm. Do you feel that like? Um, like you are an artist in the kitchen and like the foods you're meeting? I think there's elements of art in what I do. Um, I don't know that I'd call myself an artist. It sounds pretentious for a chef to call himself an artist, even though being a chef in 2018 is much, much more than it was in 1980 um, or 1977, the year I was born. Um, I mean, chefs back then were were just, um, you know, really a very low rank in society. It wasn't a desirable career, especially in New Zealand had very little appreciation for chefs um, and really, um, you know, it was the last resort that you would do, um, you know, And I, but I was really passionate about being a chef. I'd wanted to be a chef since I was five. And so for me, it was like this shiny thing, you know, I didn't really see it for what it was, yeah. but I, just, I was just really passionate about cooking. Uh, now, you know, um, you know, when you have a creative restaurant like Attica, um, you know, it really is a very broad spectrum of creative things that you need to do, you know, um, and, um, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, you know, Attica is a, is a curator and a, a gallery. Um, and it's, it, it would also um, supports a big community of artists as well. Um, and so those uh, artists' work are elements of our work as well. They're, they're symbiotic, you know. We have plates made from Australian clay by potters um, and artists, uh, ceramic artists from Victoria, um, South Australia, New, um, New South Wales, Tasmania, um, all of our um, all of our dinnerware is handmade and custom made for Attica. Uh, that's just one small part of um, the dinner. I mean, you know, you've got blacksmiths, basket weavers, uh, you know, uh, fine artists, musicians. Um, you've got. Um, You've got uh, photographers, writers, um, there's all kinds of different art forms kind of going on there and, and working in with the food and the meal and it sounds complicated and it is complicated actually. Mm, yeah. So when you said you were, uh, you wanted to be a chef since you were five years old, like did you start just, um, you know, replicating like other people's meals and just cooking out of the cookbook and everything to build your skills? And did you eventually get to a point where you wanted to start like really creating your own meals or were you already thinking like that as a kid? Yeah, I was already thinking like that, like straight away. Um, you know, I was already thinking that I was going to create my own stuff uh, and I did start creating my own stuff really young, but I had a couple of like kind of riffs on cooking that I would repeat and they were kind of dishes of sustenance, but they were very much my dishes. And one of them was white sauce, so like a bechamel, you know, flour, butter, um, cook it into a roux, add milk, make a white sauce, and then you would normally add cheese, but we couldn't afford cheese to use in the bechamel, so it was just a bechamel or a white sauce. And then I'd put peas into it, and then I'd have that on toast. And that was something that I was making when I was eight. Um, another, my other, my other go-to dish was um, were carrots because we always seem to have carrots. Um, 
and you cut them on the angle and then stir fry them in a wok and then add soy sauce and some water and some corn flour and you glaze them and I'd have that on toast as well. So there's this reoccurring theme of toast and, and weird things when I was a kid that I'd make. Um, but I was you know always trying to learn about cooking um, and trying to be artistic through my cooking. And I remember when I was 10, I made my parents like a, a you know, a, a fruitcake uh, for Christmas, you know, and I iced it with um, almond icing and then a layer of royal icing and I made flowers um, out of uh, out of icing and decorated the whole thing and I did it when they weren't around. And uh, um, and it was, you know, for a 10-year-old, it was, it was a beautiful cake, except I forgot to add the eggs. Um, so when you actually ate it, it was a little bit dry, <laughs> but my parents were like pretty psyched on it and pretty happy. Um, so yeah, always just trying to make things. Um, you know, I worked in the kitchen really young. My first professional experience in a kitchen when I was 10. Um, I'd written uh, letters to, um, to restaurants in the city, which is about two and a half hours away from the farm and, uh, five restaurants. One of them returned uh, my uh, letter. The other, other four never returned my letter and I hate them to this day. No, joking. <laughs> um, and, uh, no, they're all out of business. So that's karma for you. Uh, but the one that wrote back was called The Mill and they took me in and, um, you know, it was a dangerous place, a kitchen for a 10-year-old because it's busy, it's hot, there's hot oil, there's hot water, there's people moving fast. Um, but this little this little uh, kitchen had like a real pirate crew, really gnarly, you know, wearing bandanas and chili pepper hats and like just crazy uh, gear that they were wearing and they were banging out lots of the classics of the day, things like a fisherman's basket with squid rings and lasagna which is my all-time favorite dish and a family dish and um when it got too gnarly during service um they'd send me in this dumbwaiter um down to the next floor and i'd scare the front of house staff and the barman would set me behind the bar and make me traffic light drinks and it was just an amazing experience it's so generous of them and they were rough you know they were like a rough bunch of cooks um as many cooks can be and um and they were coming from all walks of life, but they were super kind. They were super kind-hearted, and it was an amazing experience. I never forget it. And I went there for I think a Friday and Saturday for about um, two months, and um, they they let me spend time in the kitchen. Wow, it's pretty cool. Very generous of them. Because I think you know, if, you know, running your own business, if a ten-year-old asks you, it's not the most enticing person to have come and work for you. Like a no, kid. no, we have had a ten-year-old come into the Attica kitchen and spend time. Um, you know her mother was there as well um but it is difficult because it is a dangerous you know it is a fairly not didn't say dangerous but it's a fairly fast moving place and if you're behind somebody and they don't know as you know tom you cooked before it yeah yeah you can get um you can get yeah knocked down or hurt yeah exactly there's lots of uh sharp objects and uh hot objects and there as are. you said oil and all that sort of stuff yeah, yeah. just on just on that actually just yeah. to finish on that, um, that after I did that work experience, I ended up getting a job in a, in a restaurant called the Time Out Cafe. And that was the real hook in for me, kind of creatively um, into cooking and wanting to run a restaurant uh, and wanting to be a chef. Because I, at the Time Out Cafe, I was allowed to make lasagna, again, the family dish. Um, and when I served the lasagna, I could see a small line from the kitchen to the dining room. And I, and I, and when those plates were put down in front of the guests, I could see the expression on their face as they ate my food. And that was really incredible because they were delighted. And they were like, 
kind of getting high on it, you know, they're they high on life, you know, naturally. And, and I was watching them be delighted about something that I'd created. And that was like the reason why it's the reason why I do it now even that's the that's the whole reason you know it's the whole reason why you drive yourself so hard and you work so hard because you want to make people happy and to be able to witness that well I didn't really know too many other things that I could do where you could witness that you know my dad never got to witness the happiness of people you know eating the meat that he farmed ethically um you know, my mother had some gratification, I'm sure, through the happiness that she created for the children that she taught because she was a teacher and a principal. Um, but I had this very direct line to gratification from my creative work. I made something. If it was good, you know, I could send it out to the dining room and they could see it. And I was 13 when I was experiencing that, and it was really intense. At the same time, the flip side of that is you can absolutely see it when somebody doesn't like your work as well. <laughs> and they're pretty quick to tell you. Yeah, yeah, you can uh, really read it on their faces at times. Oh. I've, I've even known just with paintings and stuff like what. Like I don't like doing commissions for that reason. It's like sure people give you a, a brief and you try to you know you paint to that brief and then you go ta da here you go and the, you can just see their face straight away. It's like oh, you better <laughs> if you don't like it, it just breaks your heart. You know. No, no, no. Like, as a <laughs> as a fan of art, I can't imagine ever like asking somebody to paint something in a way a certain way for me you know yeah. and maybe it's a commission i could i can see myself doing a commission but it would be just like paint whatever you want yeah you know yeah. but i would much prefer to, to look across a span of work and choose something that relates to me personally yeah definitely because even if you get the colors and everything you know if everything's like as, as per brief you know there there could be like um a compositional flow that's missing you mm. know what i mean mm. i think when you paint freely and you create freely um, it's you, you can just ride that flow. Whereas if you're trying to always read someone else's mind while you're doing it, you, um, it can just be a bit too mechanical. And um, I reckon it just muddies the waters too much. You know, yeah. I think uh, it, it it also becomes um, you know comes back to the age old issue and problem of doing something just for money. Would you actually paint that painting if there wasn't somebody paying you to paint that painting? You know, you might, you probably wouldn't. Would you have ever come to the idea, say I said to you, I've got this great dog. You know, this dog is amazing. His name's Taco. He's a Sheba. I really want you to paint a Sheba for me, Tom. <laughs> and you'd be like, oh man, what a drag. But you know, I guess he's asking me. And I say, oh, but Tom, you know, I can see you don't really want to do it, but I'm going to pay you $10,000 to paint a Sheba. <laughs> and you'd be like, wow, you know, I have to consider it because I need to live, you know, and I, I'm living, you know, by painting. But I don't think you'd come to, you know, you probably wouldn't come to painting a Sheba unless you'd, um, unless I'd said so. So mm. that's how I feel as well creatively when I'm cooking. You know, if somebody asks me to cook something I wouldn't normally, I won't. Mm. You know, like I just don't. Um, you know, and there's lots of reasons for that. Um, one of them is because I might not be good at cooking that thing that they're asking me to do. I might not have any skill or knowledge about it. Mm. Um, or I might not want to work with that ingredient because it, I might not like that ingredient, you know, so, and it might not be that I don't like the ingredient because I don't like the taste of it, but I might not like the ethics of it, you know, I might think that that ingredient is harmful um, or doesn't need to be cooked. Um, so there's a whole heap of reasons for kind of not doing, I guess, commissions or not doing yeah. what people expect of you as well. Sure. Well, it changes something from a want to to a have to, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah. And and then there's, like you said, there's that the chance of disappointment as well on their behalf, you mm. know, if it's not what they had in their mind. Yeah. 
Yeah. So with your um, like when, with your early uh, you know, chefing career in your early days, were you um, you said you were like always trying to uh, come up with your own ideas. Were, were you forced to recreate other people's recipes when working in other restaurants? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, every person, I suppose, um, you know, every creative person, and it doesn't just um, relate to chefs, but artist, musician. Um, there's very, very few people in the world, I believe, if any, that actually come into existence with their art form fully formed. You know, that's just, to me, that's not, it's very unlikely. And I'd be very skeptical of anybody that suddenly had an incredible style that just came out of thin air in a period of a few weeks or months. Um, We're all products of our environments and where we've worked and the influences that we've had. And I'm no different. I, you know, I worked for a great many people before I actually had, um, well, you know, the actual final absolute say on everything, you know. So, you know, I'm 41, you know, I've been running Attico, I think it's the 14th year this August. So I've been able to make the shots on my food for 14 years um, without any anyone telling me what to do. Um, prior to that, I worked for a bunch of other people who were great people and they were mentors and I learned different things from all of them. Um, and I helped them with their creativity too. I assisted them but they had the ultimate say. Um, and sometimes I had more um, of a creative place in their kitchen than others. Um, I was always, I've always probably been the most creative cook in any kitchen I've worked in. And that's not coming from a place of arrogance. It's just what I was good at. It didn't mean that I was the best cook in the restaurant because you know maybe I wasn't as much of a leader or wasn't as organized, but I could come up with ideas all the time freely pretty much um, and because I was always wanting to and always wanting to work it you know and always wanting to hone it and so everywhere I want I was really fortunate because I worked for people that saw something in me and gave me this creative freedom they they, they, they saw me and they said oh maybe if we don't allow Ben um, some creative freedom then he's going to get sick of this and want to leave so we'll allow him this space every week to do this creative work or we'll make him our assistant my assistant on a menu and um, and he can help me with the creation and that way he feels invested. Um, and so really fortunate that I had, you know, probably about 10 people that I worked for that saw that. And it could be anything, Tom. I mean, you know, I've worked in some really hum- humble places. I've worked in hotels, I've worked in pubs and nightclubs. I haven't had this really um, glamorous career prior to Attica. You know, I was just a hardworking cook. Uh, who came from New Zealand, who trained in New Zealand and then worked in Australia. I didn't work in the big kitchens of Paris, Japan, London, New York. That wasn't my experience, you know. Um, my experience was New Zealand, then Australia, and I had a love affair with the, the food of Thailand. And so quite a weird mix. And sometimes I'd have to make nachos, you know, um, mm. and that's what I did. But while I was making nachos, I'd be practicing my knife skills by thinly slicing capsicums. Or sometimes I had to do, you know, a buffet for 500 people. Um, but my creative um, contribution to the buffet would be I'd be able to come in two or three hours before anybody else and, and design the actual physical structure of the buffet. So, you know, put out the tables, cloth the tables, build different levels, different heights on the buffet, and then decorate them with cornucopia of fruits stuck to broomsticks and duct tape that you couldn't see and, and do ice sculptures or margarine carvings and these sorts of things, you know, um, that was that was what I was given. It was a gift that I was given by the people that I work for. I'll always be grateful for it. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's 
I guess you're really fortunate to have that skill to be able to come up with the ideas and um, because that's I find in well when you're being creative or in any any part of life really where you're trying to um, stand out and be different like the idea is the the hardest part like coming up with that idea like I've worked I've noticed in like graphic design studios and like just everywhere I've worked and the places I've been like coming up with that idea is the uh, the tough part you know yeah so to have that innate within you is like you're pretty uh pretty fortunate yeah and no, i've always kind of known what to do um and there's not a lot of um gray in me you know like it's with my ideas and with my creativity it's pretty black and white mm. um and i'm also um absolutely not scared to fail um and i've failed um more times than more most people i know and through that failure everyone talks about failure being positive um, and failure is 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 super can be super positive, um, but you've got to learn from it. You know, like I don't repeat my mistakes, so I learn from them, and I have like a really good memory of what things worked and what things didn't. And I also have a really good memory of never wanting to go back to those places either. That you know of, of failure, that's what drives me. Um, you know, so. Just because you have an idea doesn't mean it's a good one, you know, in any for any um, walk of life, you know. And um, so I will often think of ideas, I'll write them down. Um, so a lot of times, you know, um, your creativity or idea will come to you and you'll, you'll write it down, you'll be really invested in it, you know, and you'll think that, well, this, this new idea is going to be, you know, revolutionary. When people see this, they're going to be blown away. And if we can just make it like this and we can do this and you spend a lot of time thinking about it, planning it, and then you go to attempt it and it absolutely sucks. <laughs> and at the same time, through that process, you might have had just a little idea that, oh, you know, just this little idea, you know, um, nothing much. I'll write it down, but it, it won't come to much. And then when you try that little idea, that simple idea, it often is the one, you know. And um, I mean... Occasionally, I've stuck with a big idea and seen it through, and that could have taken me one and a half years from the beginning of development um, to, um, you know, to actually serving it to guests, which is just a brutally long time to be working on something and incredibly frustrating. Um, but there's this one point, um, you know, at the mature maturation of any great idea um, that you have or any creative idea, when you know, because the way we work is is that we. You know, we have an idea and then we work on it and we work on it. And it's never really straight away. This, it's just not possible to, to have an idea and then to make it and the next day, there you go. That doesn't, that doesn't happen. That's impossible. It takes weeks. It takes months. It takes discipline, hard work and determination. And you've got to keep going. And the difference between us and a lot of other people having good ideas is that we have an ability to judge when the idea is completed and ready. Um, whereas maybe... A lot of other people in our industry um, will be prepared to just put the idea forward already, uh, but I won't be pressured by anybody to put something on until I feel like it's right. Um, so we keep working on them, honing them, trying them every day. I mean, we might try something, a new dish. We might try it, you know, like 150 times, like until it's ready. And then the moment when everything clicks and you're just trying combinations and you're trying, trying and trying and trying, and then when it clicks, and you taste it and you look at it and you think, yeah, there's like something special there. It's one of the most beautiful moments of all of life. And the feeling inside me is so intense um, and it's just adrenaline. And 
all of the like previous months of frustration and failure and throwing it away and waste and just driving yourself absolutely mad are worth it for that one moment when you realize that you've got something that's fully formed and people are going to be blown away and it gives me a lot of confidence and that's why i still do it i mean you know nobody will want to work 75 hours a week um you know in a kitchen um, unless there's something more than money um, because no amount of money is ever going to give you that feeling and it's that feeling for me um, that moment when I know that something's spot on I can ta- I can send it out and I know that people I can't wait to see how people react and it's intoxicating and you want it more it's like a it's like a drug you know it's addictive you want it more so you keep going on to the next thing mm. well I'm fortunate enough to have tasted your food and you, you can really see the love and hard work that's gone into each dish that comes out and I guess that's one of the reasons why you're so successful as well, you know, because, um, you know, a lot of people aren't willing to go that far, to, you know, before a dish is ready to go out. No, you, yeah. you've got to want to go deep and, and you have to have people around you who want to go deep. And, and if they don't want to go deep, then they won't, they won't last because it's mm. too intense, you know, mm. and, uh, and it's too hard. And, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm acutely aware of being a creative person and what that means to other, the people around me and the effect that that can have on them because you can get on, you know, and a lot of people listening, I'm sure can relate to the quest, if you like, you know, of your own creativity and wanting to create something, wanting to make your mark, wanting to do something original and different. And, and when, when you're pushing that hard and you're going that deep, it can, um, it can destroy a lot of things too if you let it. So you've got to be responsible with it at the same time. And I haven't always been responsible with it, you know. Mm. So when you're um, when you are creating new dishes, like where do you look for inspiration? Um, I mean, I think in the beginning you look to other people in, in cooking. You know, like um, you look to the classics, you look to history, um, you look to recipe books, you look to mentors. So when you're starting out, and like I said to you, you know, there's no there's no one really on this planet who came fully forward in their and their um, creative endeavors, you know, that's a, that's a process over time. Um, and I would say that anybody that's, that's saying difference, phony, you know, um, because it's hard work and you've, you've got to come from a combination of many influences in your life. And so at the beginning, it's, it's other cooks, other people. And then I just got really bored of that. Like, uh, you know, out of care of started to become this different thing um, straight away. And um, it certainly wasn't at the beginning, it wasn't what it is now, but creatively, it was always it all. I've always had a strong creative urge at Attica, and so I, um, you know, I stopped looking at what any other person in my industry was doing, and um, and that was really liberating because it just it wasn't that I found their work boring. It just didn't. It did. It wasn't at all. I find other people's cooking amazing, and I want to eat it, but I just don't want to make it for myself. You know, I want to make what's true to me always, and. And so I started to find music hugely influential in my life, you know, that was always a big influence on me. Um, I, I started collaborating with artists, with my father, Rob, um, with Colin Page, my, my friend, um, who's a, an art photographer, and, and Hisco, who's another uh, Melbourne artist you know well and has been on the show. Um, these sorts of influences started to inform me in different ways. I started looking at things differently. I started... Um, study architecture and design um, you know the all of these th- sorts of things started to influence me and these different um, relationships and these different industries are really positive because if you're in one industry and you're just looking inside that industry um, it can become quite a small world 
and um, and I think um, and my industry in particular really needs to broaden horizons, you know, beyond other chefs or other hospitality people, front of house, beyond um, even farms, farmers and inspiration. I mean, looking at culture has always been a huge inspiration for me from day one. You know, firstly, the culture from New Zealand that I grew up with of the New Zealand, Ma- New Zealand Maori people, and then the culture of our country, Australia, of the Torres Strait Islander people and Aboriginal people have been a really big influence on me. Um, their set of ingredients and their culture and their knowledge are really influential. Um, and and so just there's so many things that you can look at. There's so many things in the world and in life to be inspired by. You know, hard times and good times. Travel, um, all these things are, um, you know, active all the time in every person really. It's just how open are you to these outside influences? Do you think that oh, if you're a chef by studying art, that you couldn't possibly use that in your own work. Um, if, if you think that, you never will be influenced by that, but if you're open-minded, or if it seems, seems natural, because that's what you grew up with, with a father that painted all the time, or sculptured all the time, or made stuff all the time, um, it's just normal. Um, it's not a big deal, you know. Um, if you grew up with a mother that um, grew a lot of her own vegetables and cooked in a really ethical and sustainable way, and self-sustaining way before that was really trendy and really popular, um, then that is just normal to you, you know. Um, it's not a big deal, you know. So for me, working with other artists and other creative people is just really natural, and I wanted to bring that in pretty early, you know. Mm. Like you've uh, you've shown me around the restaurant before, and you've told me about uh, all the different elements that make up the restaurant like everything to the the wood on the walls and the chairs and the the bowls and just everything has mm-hmm. a um a story in it for you um like how important is it like storytelling within like each element of the uh, of the restaurant and i know you always you also like to um source local yeah yeah well i think it's really important and i think it comes back to the beginning of knowing what you are um you know and and that is you know, at Attica, knowing what, what, what we are is basically understanding, like, you know, just the practical, basic nature of what we do. And that is that we have a huge garden in Ripley Estate. We produce a lot of our primary products ourselves by planting seed um, and harvesting each day. Um, and then we take those products, as well as lots of other um, artisans' products, and we produce them each day in a small factory, i.e. the kitchen. Um, so in a lot of ways, Attica is like this small boutique factory um, where there's a lot of craftspeople um, because all of the cooks are obviously craftsmen and women. And, um, and then you make these um, handmade um, preparations every day from scratch using the best materials that you can get, um, made by and grown by the best people that we know. Um, and we take them and we serve them to people. And then, um, but we have to serve them at a level of service higher than any other level of service almost in the country because that's the expectation, you know. Um, so understanding that, number one, is really important. So understanding kind of what you do and what your thing is um, because then it, that enables you to attract a lot of other like-minded people. Um, and so Attica has this big group of people that we call the helpers, you know, and they aren't employed full-time at Attica, but they, they collaborate with us. Um, they make things for us. They write for us. They design for us. They um, build software for us. Um, they do all manner of things. Um, and everything at Attica is completely bespoke. So all of this work needs to be done kind of first time, you know, a lot of the time. So when you're talking about the dining room, yes, it's true. Everything in the dining room is from um, the state of Victoria. You know, uh, 
the timber is local timber that's um, sourced and made into cabinetry. The carpet is made in Geelong. The glass is made in Geelong. The chairs are made in, down the road in Cheltenham. Um, the Featherston Scape chairs, that's a design from 1960, one of the most important Australian chair designs in history. Um, and so on, you know, the stone is from Harcourt and it's, you know, cut by these, you know, these old guys in their 60s that, that burnish it and polish it perfectly. There's a relationship with everything um, because um, that's the way we work and that's what we're interested in. You know, we're really interested in uh, connection. And, um, and in a, back to the storytelling part, it's super important if you want to know the story. You know, if, if you don't want to know the story, that's cool as well because it shouldn't matter um, to somebody coming whether they're interested in the story or not. You know, they should, it should just be a super good time, you know, really high quality and really high level. And if they are wanting to know more, then we have all of that knowledge. You know, we've written pretty much books on, on all of the products, the ingredients, the, the potters, the artists, um, everybody that, um, that works with us, you know. There's a connection and it's a human thing, you know. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to connect with other humans. And so it would be really unwise and, um, you know, somewhat of a mistake to use, in my opinion, uh, you know, a chair from Italy where we can use a chair from Victoria. Um, because, you know, on one hand, we're saying we're really interested in all of the culture from here, you know, everyday Australian culture, uh, culture of uh, Boonarong people, the people that are, you know, the original inhabitants of the area that we're from. You know, we're interested in, in Vietnamese culture. We're interested in, in uh, you know, the Greek culture of Oakley. We're, we're interested in, um, in Chinese culture. We're interested in all these layers that make up Victoria. Um, but then we have chairs from Italy that, you know, that doesn't really relate to, you know, what we're doing. You know, it just doesn't make sense to me personally. It doesn't make sense to the restaurant. So Yeah. And you were saying before that you've, um, you know, you've worked so hard and you've built up, you know, such a great reputation. You've, you've got all these awards and accolades. Like, does that, um, does that put pressure on you to, uh, to keep, you know, making sure that everything, you know, is perfect? No, I don't feel pressure from that, um, fortunately, because I think if, it, if I did, it would drive me absolutely insane, you know, and I couldn't, maybe I would become scared and start to stop and freeze, and I think that's a trap of success. Um, when you've had success, you want to perpetuate it. It's, it's like fame, you know. People who become famous surround themselves with people who help perpetuate their fame, you know, and that's kind of sycophantic, but that's what happens, and... Um, and success is, can be like that, especially in restaurants, because you can reach a level and you can think, ah, oh, it's all set now. I've reached this level. Um, I just need to protect it. You know, I just need to do enough to protect it. Um, I don't want to lose it. And for me, it's like, well, I didn't ask for, you know, I didn't ask for those awards and I didn't ask for that, um, you know, that celebrity. I didn't ask for like all those things that weren't important to me. I just wanted to create. Um, so I'm just going to continue creating because that's what I do and that's what I enjoy. Um, and there's one, I always want to look forward. I never want to be the same in two years either. I want to evolve because that's fun for everybody involved, for my staff, for me, for our guests. And so there's one thing that we do to help that. And that is that, um, when we change a dish, we never bring it back. So a lot of restaurants run sort of seasonal menus and they have their dishes that they do and they might do dishes in spring and then um, dishes in summer. And they might have a sort of rotating cast of dishes that they've done historically. And they might bring a few new ones on as well. Or we only ever bring new ones on. So when a dish is on the menu, 
um, and it's on there for a period of time, and we leave it on there long enough for it, you know, as long as it's good and the guests enjoy it. Um, and then um, we cut it loose, and so we kill our darlings all the time. You know, we have to come up with something new, and that always, it always um, tends to make you look forward to the future. You know, and uh, always helps you to evolve. And I think you know, now we're fourteen years old, and we're at a point of kind of, you know, not giving a shit quite as much. Might be the best way to say it. You know, just always wanting to. Um, be better always constantly in every way um, but at the same time just having confidence with that as well and saying that sometimes you know we know better that sounds like an arrogant thing to say but i'm the one at the helm for 14 years um somebody that's come in and maybe watched master chef for a few episodes and thinks they knows a bit well I, I, maybe their opinion while important maybe does not matter that much to me ultimately um, criticism matters to me um, a great deal. Uh, it's certainly much more than praise. Um, I never learned anything from praise. I remember or ever criticism, and I'm not thin-skinned, but I but I listen to it. And whether or not I agree with it or not, that's up to me, you know. But I'll definitely listen to it. I'll think about it. I might even talk about it. Um, and ultimately, if if it if it has been an error on my behalf or on the restaurant's behalf, I'll fully I'll fully own it, you know, and make change. Hmm. But um, because nobody's perfect, you know. But it, it and I think when um, when creativity slows down, it's when people start to think that they can't know it all. You know, like, well, what's there? What's how much more work is there to be done? No, I've had all these awards, all these accolades. I can slow down. Um, and actually, anything could be further from the truth. You actually need to work harder. You know, that that's the ultimate thing because people have more and more expectations. But number one, I would say to me, is based on the fact that I've been cooking since I was five years old. Um, that's been my life's work, my life's passion. Um, most of the time I feel like I know what's right to do. That's why people come to the restaurant as well, because they want to see this individual expression. They don't want to see something watered down or what somebody else is doing. They're coming for us. So we've got to stay strong, you know. Um, we've got to make the right calls, do the right thing, make sure the quality is super high and stay healthy and stay... Um, stay inspired hmm. so it's sort of like um you know creating from a, a place of love not fear you know what I mean? oh yeah. yeah a love for the craft you know yeah, like yeah. a love for doing it not for fame not for ego not for success not for money never for money everybody needs to have enough money to get by on but money and never bring you happiness you know like it just just doesn't work like that you know it people can say whatever they want this certainly wouldn't make me happy it doesn't make me happy like you know, it just it just muddies things. You know, like uh, so you need to run a business which is responsible, has enough money to pay everybody, pay your suppliers on time, before time, and anybody that works with us knows that we do that. It's really important to me. Um, you know, the ethics of asking people to do work for you and then paying them slowly or not paying them or not paying them properly is just really rubbish. You know, um, uh, you know. W- We've worked together, so you know that um, you know how important this is. We've had discussions about this, mm. but also like your your work ethic is amazing as well. Like it, you know, someone in your position who you know owns a restaurant and is the head chef, you know, I've seen business owners sort of take a step back and just pay people to do their work for them. But I've seen you, you know, you know, do you know, clean the toilets and <laughs> you know, mop the floors and be the last one there scrubbing things and yeah you know even like you know painting bits to you know tidy them up and like 
just all the jobs that you know you um not used to seeing the uh, the owner of a business do. You know, I think it's um, you know, it's testament to yourself to, you know, so that you don't feel see that you're above anyone. You know, above oh, any no. job. Never, no, yeah. never. It's about self respect as well as respecting the people around you, Tom. You know, mm. um, and how could I ask any young person that works for me to do something for me if I'm not prepared to do it myself? I would never do that. Mm. You know, um, because you know they just put in so much more if they have a proper leader. You know, and it's just a leadership thing, isn't it? You know, like. Plus, I absolutely aren't above doing anything, you know, even mm. after 14 years, it doesn't at all, it doesn't even enter my mind that I wouldn't do something. Mm. Um, and um, it's also teaching as well, you know, like you're setting a good example. If somebody sees me clean the staff toilets, if some of my staff see me, I don't tell them about it, I just do it. But if they see me do it, they think, well, you know, if Ben's prepared to do it, then we, we, we surely won't complain, you know, when it's our turn. Um, yeah, and I just think um, there's also like a really great camaraderie about being with the people that you employ, you know, as much as you can, and just being there in the trenches with them and um, and and helping helping out and uh, you know having a you know a kind word to one of them or having a little conversation about hey how's your day going? It's just an opportunity by scrubbing down a bench alongside someone to say to them, you know, how's everything with your life, you know. Um, is everything good with you? How are you doing? I think those little conversations and moments in life are super important and we need to do more of asking those sorts of questions of people. And um, because it makes people feel engaged and it makes them feel um, cared about. You know? mm. Yeah, definitely. And you touched on before about um, about critics as well and criticism. Mm. Like it's something that I guess, you know, in you know, your world and also in my world, we've, there's, there's critics around. Um, like what's your view on it? I, I, I don't know. Criticism? For, for me, for me personally, I think it's a it's a really weird, um, uh, really weird job to have to be a critic. Yeah, it, it's it it's a tough one criticism, but I think um, there's definitely a place in society and in life for expert critics, people who, like me or you, have have spent their life honing their own skill, and that might be criticism or writing. Um, and they they really know they're really across say you know say for example in in the world of art they're really across all of the styles of art and they they're really across um, all the techniques and they're really across different visions and original ideas and then they're informed to be able to actually criticize somebody what I don't really like is somebody who just criticizes out of hate um, or out of jealousy I don't like that I I like I don't mind being criticised by somebody who has expert knowledge on the subject. Mm. And so when I read it, I understand what they're criticising and what the words mean. Um, if it's completely wrong, then, I, then I'm not up for that. And I would, I'd, re, I'd refute that. Um, but I'll cop it on the chin if it's, if it's done in the right way. And, and, it's, and Because I think, you know, um, not everybody in society is an expert on cooking or on art. So the, the role of the critic exists to tell people who are interested but don't make it their life's passion to know what's up, you know. Otherwise, you know, anybody can just jump in immediately and create stuff that's perhaps not, you know, true to themselves and maybe it's doing somebody else a disservice because they've plagiarised an idea or something. I think there's there's merit in, in that, in, in somebody being able to say, okay, so, you know, I don't know, Frank's work, for example, I don't know who Frank is, but hypothetically, Frank's work in the kitchen is really nice, but it really reminds me of um, Rene Rezepi from Noma, who's a famous chef from Denmark. 
it, because its use of local ingredients and creative style reminded me of Rene. So there's value in that, actually, because you know Rene spent a whole life creating his own personal vision, um, and then Frank just comes along, copies it, and and would could be celebrated for it unless the unless the critic was there to, to tell everybody else, hey. This guy's doing good work, but it's influenced by this other person, and you should really check out this other person that lives in Denmark first, mm. because that's where the inspirations come from. So I think there's some there's some there's some validity in that. The times that I've been criticised, I I remember them like correctly criticised. I remember them very well, and we're fortunate we you know we don't cop too much criticism, but um, I, re I recall in the first year. A review came out from the Good Food Guide, is the main one of the main reviewing guides for restaurants in Australia, and the review said, it said blah 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 blah. I can't remember whatever else it said. It was probably nice. And this is we had a score of fifteen out of twenty, which is one chef's hat, which is, you know, quite a high score for, you know, it's quite a nice score for your first year, but not good enough for me. But I remember reading the review, and it said, it said sometimes overcooks fish and for me that like was like a dagger like being stabbed repeatedly into my heart because I so desperately didn't want to overcook fish you know and it but I'm pretty sure that we had I was pretty sure that we had because I can't cook everything so you rely on staff but my own but it was really my own fault completely because I hadn't trained them in that first year properly to not overcook fish, you know? Um, so I had to accept it and pay much more attention to cooking fish and I swear we haven't overcooked a piece of fish since. So that criticism to me, incredibly helpful um, because it stays with me, you know? And it's one of those things that you use as motivation to get better. I didn't, I never, I never looked at the publication and thought, oh, they're wrong. You know, oh, they don't know what they're talking about that publication knows what they're talking about. That publication would be going for almost 30 years before Attica started. So, you know, you have to respect that opinion. Mm. Um, and it's about making an informed decision about the criticism, whether or not it's valid or not, you know, or is it personally motivated? You know, that's another thing too. So I don't read or I don't listen to any criticism on like online really, like unless it's by a major, major publication, I won't read reviews or, or blogs or comments because if you do if you let, allow yourself to read those thousands of articles and comments that are written about your work it'll eat you up inside you know and you start to doubt yourself so i just mm. remove myself from that yeah that's interesting i've never really um i've never delved into this topic with anyone before it's um that's a really good um slant on it because me personally i've always had in my head like you know that the critics are evil or whatever and <laughs> you know like you'll see some you know guy stroking his chin going oh you know making it up his own view on something it's like like say on a painting or whatever and it's like oh you know you know that's not a very good painting or something and it's like well hang on mate where's your painting let's see one of your paintings <laughs> before you go judging this art and yeah and, and also i've always thought that everyone's got their own tastes sure. so so like how can you say from can one person say that this is good or this is bad when everyone has their own taste like someone might like overcooked fish but i do but after hearing what you just said like i completely get it now it's, and it's also not yeah. a level playing field either though yeah. tom because there is there is some art that is better than others you know yeah. and there's some food and some cooking that is better yeah. than others and 
if there wasn't, then you wouldn't need a critic. You know, like everything was just the same. But then, but then of course, if everything was just the same, the whole world and the whole society would be completely homogenous. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's where the critic kind of fits in. And um, um, what's been interesting, I think, in the last eight to ten years is, you know, especially in my industry, is with, with the, you know, the celebration of cooks and chefs and all of the TV that comes with it. And then add on to it social media is that, you know, a lot of people think that they're um, quite expert at what they're saying. And a lot of people do, a lot of amateur people do have a lot of knowledge. Um, but it's really, you know, it's really about listening to, you know, if you're going to listen to somebody, you know, you need to read their body of work and understand their perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they love, um, you know, classical landscape paintings, then maybe they don't love the work from someone that's come from the streets. I don't know. You know, mm. maybe they do. But if they're criticizing your work and you look back and see what they what they've liked um, previously and what you know, if they've if they've given rave reviews about every you know, I don't know more traditional artist for want a better term, then you know well, you know their opinion's probably more loaded with that bias. You know, like mm. that's what that that's what they. Um, that's what they know and that's what they like. And so you can sort of say to yourself, oh, that's water off a duck's back to me. You know, they just don't like my style. But then if, um, I don't know, if, if it's something valid, I think it, there's, a, there's an opportunity to grow through listening to it, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. And not take it personally. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't take it terribly personally. I, I, I try, I mean, I've got to the point where I can look at it, I can stand back at it and, and look at it and listen to it and take the parts out of it that I need to to improve. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's um yeah, it's I think it's great what you've been saying because we live in a in a world today with social media and just the the power of the internet that everyone's got an opinion. And I think mm. um you know, if you just like cancel out all those people who you don't consider to have a valid opinion, have a valid opinion, there's probably not many people who are really judging your work and um I think it's the best way to be, you know, you run your own race and you create yeah. your heart how do you feel? That's what's most important, you know? How do you feel yeah, about it? Yeah, exactly. How do you feel exactly. about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's how I always try to do it. It's like, you know, someone... I've had people criticise my art and compare me to other people and all that sort of stuff and I have to stop and really think about it. Mm-hmm. And then I'll ask someone whose opinion I really... I value and I'll say, well, be honest with me. And then... Um, and they'll tell me their, their opinion and if they come back with the same thing, it's like, all right, well that person's probably right yeah especially if somebody that you trust and that you're close yeah. to yeah um but, but i think um yeah i think kind of i think at the beginning of a creative career or a creative endeavor there's a lot more um, um self-doubt you know mm. and insecurities and um as you go on and you you sort of you fit into your own skin a little bit more as a creative person it it, it sort of tends to bleed away a little bit you know with the social media thing, I think it's an interesting thing because I basically think that I am on social media, but I think that a lot of what's on social media is absolute bullshit, you know, and that's just um, because it's just not real. And I don't think you know, a lot of younger people, especially, don't realise that it's not real. And I just look at I just look at social media and I look at the pressure on young people and young creative people, and especially in 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 the hospitality industry with restaurants. You know, everybody's trying to take a beautiful photograph of a dish and post it, like you know, like a piece of art, really. But the whole point is, is that you've got to be able to reproduce that, you know, sixty to a hundred times um, in a night. Now, I remember seeing a photo of a perfectly cooked piece of fish, a little fillet, and on it, it had maybe 
a hundred peas perfectly placed on top of the fish. Now, it looked beautiful on Instagram, Tom, but I can assure you that that's not possible in that kitchen that who posted that photo. It's not possible because I don't have the staff, and it's probably not even possible in my own kitchen with 25 staff. So what's the point of that? There's no point to that because that's not what you're going to get when you go there. So I think people using you know social media, they have this like unrealistic, especially young people looking at leaders sometimes have this unrealistic um, view of, of what they need to get up to, you know, like what level they need to rise to. And it just, um, I feel like it could it could crush creativity a little bit, you know, rather than inspire, you know, I think uh, and I think people can become really worried about what everybody else is doing. And, and like you said, you know, you're much better off running your own races. There's just so much insecure, um, insincerity on social media as well. And then yesterday, a close um, friend of mine, um, news came out that he'd, uh, he'd passed away and, he was uh, the greatest food writer the world has ever known, in an honest opinion. Um, and uh, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his food writing, the only food journalist in the history of food writing to win a Pulitzer Prize. His name was Jonathan Gold, and he was from Los Angeles. And uh, he's an incredible human. And um, only a few weeks ago, we'd lost another person important to our industry, and Anthony Bourdain, um, who was a um, journalist and made great cooking shows. Um, and I wasn't close to Anthony. I didn't know Anthony, um, really. And um, and somebody said to me yesterday, when I posted about uh, my friend uh, Jonathan who'd passed away, said to me, "Why didn't you give old Anthony a shout out when, you know, when um, when he passed away?" And I felt like I didn't respond to him, but my response would have been because that would have been so insincere of me. I wasn't close to the man. Mm. He didn't influence me the way he influenced almost everybody else in the industry, but I'm not just gonna post something on Instagram just because I feel like it might get some likes where it's what everybody else is doing, you know? Like, it would have been disrespectful to Anthony, in my opinion, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of, uh, of media, like, one of the first times I really became familiar of you and your work was through the uh, Netflix documentary, Chef's Table. Like, um, how did all that come about? Well, that, that's an interesting one. The, the uh, episode on uh, myself and Attica was the first ever uh, Chef's Table um, documentary that they filmed. And um, I had a friend in Sweden, Magnus Nielsen, who was a chef and uh, who was a chef. And he said, oh, you know, these guys are trying to get a hold of you. You should um, get in touch with them. They're, they want to make this documentary for Netflix. And I'm like, nah, not into it, man. And they're like, he's like, oh, come on. I'm like, nah, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. And they started emailing me and, this guy Brian McGinn who's the director started emailing me and I said oh, it's just not my bag mate you know like I'm just not really that into TV and I don't like the cult of celebrity and um, you know I'm just not me you know and uh, and they um, and he kept on emailing me and he sent me nice emails and then I was in Los Angeles and he said I know you're in Los Angeles there's bloody social media again um, he said please will you meet with me and so I met with him in this um, super dodgy um little hotel lobby just out of uh, Disneyland where I was with my kids at one night and I had a, a beer with him and we had a really good chat and I really warmed to him and he assured me that the project was going to be like a beautiful thing and not like a cooking normal cooking show and so I sort of reluctantly agreed to it because of because Brian was such a good salesman and such a nice guy um, and remains a friend to this day um, and they filmed me for 24 hours a day for 14 or 15 days huge crew about 25 people on it or something like that all from America pretty much and um, yeah they made the show and 
um, it, it's crazy. It's a crazy thing. It's uh, you know, it it it's funny when people have seen you on Netflix or seen you on a documentary, they feel like they quite they know you. You know, so often people come up to me and say, "Oh, hi, Ben." Just very casually, like like mm. they know me, and uh, and it's been a hard thing to adjust to and get used to. Um, but overwhelmingly positive. Um, you know, it really drives uh, a lot of people into the restaurant for the right reasons. The documentary itself is quite emo, so I would uh, I would say that if you've seen it, that's uh, one side of uh, what where we were at maybe three years ago. Um, it you know the story of Attica is as a one of quite um, quite a bit of hardship, um, and uh, the restaurant nearly went broke a bunch of times, and there was a massive struggle to succeed, and there it, it just certainly wasn't as cut and dry as it might look from the outside. Um, you know, just uh, hang, hang, hanging on by the skin of our teeth for many years. Um, and we made it through and it's still not easy, but uh, um, I think you can look at the success of somebody um, who's well known for what they're doing and think that maybe, you know, there wasn't kind of a backstory or wasn't any, any hard times there. Um, it, it just looks good now, um, especially coming back to social media. Uh, but yeah, anything could be further from the truth. It was the most unglossy story in the history of restaurants Attica. <laughs> Yeah, I know it's like um, a lot of people say, oh, this this person or artist or restaurant or whatever, they've just come out of nowhere. And it's like, it's uh, no one just comes out of nowhere. You know, you know what I mean? Never. Even when they said Justin Bieber, he came out of nowhere. It's like, like oh, that's a bad comparison. No, but, but he didn't. He but definitely like, didn't he come out of nowhere. Yeah, he had to learn how to play the piano and sing before he could get noticed. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's I think like, he was making like yeah. YouTube videos or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, yeah. he, you know, humble beginnings as well. I know the area that he came from. I'm not a fan of him, but I know, <laughs> I know a little bit. In that was the first person that came to mind. But um, anyway, yeah, with, the, uh, with that, there was that meal you cooked on the documentary where it was like, um, it was cooked underground. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what was that? A dish was called a simple um, dish of potato cooked in the earth that was grown. Um, that's uh, about um, the influences of New Zealand Maori culture, um, the culture that I grew up with, and in fact the culture that the majority of the country celebrates in New Zealand. And uh, the hangi is this traditional method of cooking under earth that the Maori um, like to use and historically used, and it's a delicious way of cooking. Uh, you dig a pit, you light a fire above it with using some tree trunks and tree branches, and you, you put volcanic stones on it that won't explode when they're heated, and you light a huge fire, and the whole thing ends up falling into the pit and you layer um, you know, flax leaves um, in Australia we use saltbush and um, and uh, then you layer um, you know your meat and your vegetables and kumara is the traditional thing that I you know that the Maori use and that I like to use and uh, kumara is a sweet potato and um, and then you bury it and you in, and, in earth and you basically dig it up you cover it with flax though so the 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 food doesn't become in direct contact with the earth and then you leave it for maybe 10 hours and then you dig it up and you eat it out of the pit and it's so delicious and always one of my favorite things in the hungry was a potato and I started to think um, you know creatively I started to think about the symbiotic relationship between something i.e. the potato that is grown in dirt in earth and this terroir there you know uh, that's um, that's meaning that the place that something is grown the geological location of something that is uh, is grown, that geological location has the ability to flavor that product in a unique way. That's what terroir means essentially. It's a, um, and so you could be you know farming your potatoes in your backyard and they would taste very different to somebody across town because of your soil. Um, and so I was thinking about this relationship of the potato and the soil and how that how the main flavoring agent 
for a potato is the soil and then how it would be cool to cook the potato in the soil um, in an oven and flavor it through cooking so this sort of process it flows on um, and we served it with smoked curds and ash and um, elements of the hangi um, and it was basically just a potato on a plate you know um, and at the time this is probably 2007 or 2008 there wasn't many people serving just a potato on a plate you know um, there was somewhat of a revolutionary idea I guess at the time um, it was but but it but it wasn't revolutionary um, in the public's opinion really it was more that they were like what the heck like you just serve us a potato like we can't just buy a potato, you know, we need a piece of meat, you know, or we need a piece of fish, or we need prawns, you know. I'm like, no, you have to have a potato um, because it's super delicious. And when they'd eat it, they'd be totally won over. But prior to that, like just listing a potato on, 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 the, on the menu um, was somewhat shocking to them. And, um, and it comes back to this idea of everything having equal value, you know, and that's how I kind of view the world, you know. Um, and so I, I view ingredients through this lens of, is that there's there's no better or worse ingredients there's only sustainably farmed ingredients um but society views ingredients differently so we when we see when we look at a cow we think that the most valuable part is the fillet steak um so we charge the most for that but we don't see you know the value in the shin um at the same at the same level but in actual fact the the value of the cow is the same completely the same in fact the butcher paid the same price you know probably four dollars a kilo for the whole cow um it's just that society had these preconceived notions about what is luxurious what is um valuable and and in 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 my world the restaurant world there are things like truffles and there are things like foie gras which is like a fat and goose liver which is a disgusting product from france that nobody should cook with but fortunately we don't see much of that here um but there are these luxury ingredients like lobster and people expect to see them in restaurants like mine um, in fine sort of fine dining restaurants. But I don't prescribe to that because I, I believe that, you know, like that a carrot grown in the greatest way possible is absolutely as valuable as a lobster. Um, and it's only society that that sort of puts this prestige on certain things. Um, and so we serve, you know, we try to add value to unremarkable um, ingredients, you know, like pumpkins, potatoes, carrots. It's not all mm. we serve, but it's certainly like been a focus. Because mm. um, it's like saying as well that a lobster is going to have more flavour than a, a carrot. Mm. When, you know, if you cook a carrot right, it's got way more flavour than a Absolutely. lobster. Absolutely. I'd give you me know, a carrot you, any day. Yeah, if you go you do like a blind test, but I think it's also, like, you know, because it's harder to you know, to get the lobster. It costs more money to get the lobster than to mm. dig up a carrot. It adds to the value and everything. But then because there's a price tag put on things, people will say, oh, I don't want to eat a plate of carrots. Give me a plate of lobster because it's worth more. Yeah. And I th feel that um, like art has a similar crossover as well. Yeah. Like if, um, say there's like two unknown artists and there's the similar price tag on both paintings, but one's photorealism and one's say like abstract or a bit more naive or mm. got a minimal color palette or something along those lines. People will look at the photorealism painting and probably say that that's worth more. When in actual fact, they're, they're both worth the same because they've got the same price on them. It's just, um, yeah, you know, it's just two different styles, two different tastes. Yeah, I guess yeah. that come, uh, uh that comes back to understanding what you're looking at as well a little bit, you know, yeah. and does, how does it make you feel personally? Yeah. I mean, if it makes you feel amazing personally, I mean, the abstract one would be worth infinitely more than the photorealistic one because it how you makes you feel, you know, and that's really should be like the only deciding factor on which piece you brought 
likewise with a carrot, you know, a mm. carrot or a lobster. I mean, I, I'm convinced that I could give anybody a carrot dish at Attica and a lobster dish, and I'm convinced that, that they would choose the carrot dish. That's how I feel. In fact, there's a carrot dish at Attica now that um, people often say was the best thing they ate. Yeah. yeah I've eaten it. I bloody love it. And um, I've, uh, you know, been around people who have eaten it as well, and they say it's their favorite thing on the menu. Yeah, it's, it's nice to hear. You know, yeah. It's just yeah, a humble it's, carrot, right? But yeah. it's not so humble. It's a great carrot, actually. You know, it's a great carrot grown by a great human. And that's that's the difference. You know? Yeah. And cooked by a great human. Well, uh, <laughs> cooked by a hack. <laughs> so um, we've recently been uh, working together on a collaboration as well. Um, you know, some people know this, but others don't. But, um, you know, it's, it's been really good to collaborate with you on a, uh, on a big project. Do you want to uh, explain a bit about the collaboration we've been doing together? Yeah, sure. Um, but maybe you should start by telling the listeners the way that we met because I think that's kind of funny yeah um well I met you uh while I was showing my parents around my exhibition at, at Bromley and Co and um yeah I was looking you know showing them around and I was uh, I saw you standing there looking at my paintings but sort of covering like up other paintings with your hands so you could view just one painting on its own and I was like oh what's this guy up to you know and then looked around and you know I kept continuing to show my parents around and and then, I don't know, no one was really going up to you. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I'm going to just walk up and introduce myself. And, you know, before I knew it, we were like chatting for nearly half an hour. It was, um, yeah, it was really good. And I had no idea who you were. Uh, but to me, you were just um, Ben, who was, who was like my artwork. And that was it. Yeah. And, um, Perfect. Yeah, yeah. I think it was a really good way to meet. And, it's, um, you know, it was only later on when you contacted me about actually buying the painting. And, um, yeah, I you know, looked you up and it's like, Jesus, this guy, this guy's that guy from that Netflix documentary I saw, you know, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, put two and two together and it, um, you know, I ride past Attica on my, my way to the studio every day. So yeah, then, um, one day you invited me to come in and show me around and we had a chat. Yeah. We hit it off. Hey, eh? yeah. um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm personally always drawn to firstly with my art collection as well at home and at the, at the restaurant. I like um, to have a connection to the art I, because like the ingredients, um, I like to have a connection to the people behind the ingredients as much as possible, as much as possible with the art as well because I'm drawn to ingredients and art are created by people that I like and people that I think are, um, are good people. Um, and then, you know, the pieces that you hang in your house are so personal as well with art. You know, like you don't have to look at something every day and you know the person that painted that painting is a jerk, I mean, that's going to weigh on my mind, you know? Um, and so, I mean, I'd either rather not know or, or, um, or absolutely know, you know? But, but um, all of the art in here, um, I've met or had contact with the artists or their friends. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was really nice to meet you that, that day and I was acting like a bit of a weirdo and I was trying to... I was trying to block out the other paintings so I could see what just one of them would look like by itself because I think there was three or four sort of um, streetscapes um, that I was looking at and um, yeah, it must have looked pretty pretty crazy but uh, I've forgotten we were, what we were talking about. We were talking about... Uh, the collaboration. The collaboration, sorry. Yeah. Um, and then you came by and we just, yeah, we got to know each other a bit better and um, and then the opportunity came up, I, you know, with... Well, I had the idea really um, to to renovate the backyard at Attica and I wanted you to do an installation in out there and I didn't know if you'd want to and uh, 
and we just started talking about that and then it, it's happened and uh, we became mates and that's kind of a cool thing I mean that's a very short version of the story mm. um, yeah. but yeah we have this big backyard space at Attica and the, the guests all of the guests 60 guests every night five nights a week uh, as part of the menu they get to go out to this uh, this backyard um, and it's uh, it's evolved over many years we've been doing this for quite a long time I guess we've been doing it for probably five or six years and there's always been art out there of some you know of, of uh of some kind and um, Hisco's done art out there and staff have done our art out there and I've made things out there and um, but then you know I really just wanted to give you know an artist um, that I really liked and I really liked uh, your work I wanted to give that give that space to them and say what what do you want to do mm. yeah and then um, and then you came up with the idea to create a dish yes based off the art and to be eaten eaten amongst the art yeah. and um you know, I created the art in my studio and, you know, we, you know, we, we spoke a lot about it before mm. it was made and did a lot of initial sketches and everything. But um, it was only the other night when I actually, uh, like, dined and had the full Attica experience that I got to um, experience my art through your eyes and your vision, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I was, you know, my, my wife Claire and I were just like, oh, this, is, this is genius, you know, because <laughs> it's a you know, 17-course meal and i think it's course 14 is it that you yes taking out the yes bat? it is it's course 14 so like i i haven't i haven't eaten in this way before i've never been to a, a restaurant of your caliber you know but um yeah it was it was interesting because you know we got there at six o'clock and it was you know i don't know we didn't leave till midnight yeah <laughs> like yeah eating and drinking for that long and uh you know you you sort of get really settled into the environment of uh, being in a fine dining restaurant and then by the time you've up to course 14, you, you've had an alcoholic drink with each course as well. So, you know, you're a bit tipsy and you've had all these like crazy flavors that you've been t- tasting and sampling and every dish is taking you on a journey. And then suddenly the, the waiter or waitress will um, ask you to stand up and walk you out the back. And then you've got a bit, you've got wobbly legs because you've been sitting down for so long and all the drinks and everything. And <laughs> you're taken out the back and it's like a different world. Because you've got been in this like really nice, you know, fine dining restaurant, and you're suddenly you know in sitting amongst a three sixty degree art piece. Yeah. And then there's a bit more of a party vibe out the back, and it's it's I don't know. It's like like to experience it in that way. It was like oh now I see Ben's vision, and it was it was genius. It it was a real playful element to the night. And yeah, I think it know. just levels people. And I mean, I hate doing what's expected of me, and I mm. hate the. God forbid the restaurant ever has to do what's expected of it, you know. Uh, mm. And it's certainly a very unexpected thing in, in a fine dining restaurant to do something like we're doing, like the collaboration with you. Um, but it, it, like you said, it's a long time to sit in a restaurant, you know, for a couple of hours and, and eat and drink. And the restaurant itself is beautiful, but it's very calm, sort of more tranquil sort of place. And there's a good energy in the room and there's good music um, because, you know, whoever wants to listen to elevated, elevated music in a restaurant, you know. Um, mm. But I really wanted to create the sharp juxtaposition between, you know, the dining room and the backyard. Like, I wanted to create a different world. And, um, and I wanted people to, like, be blown away by that world, you know. And, uh, and that includes lights and sound and, like I said, music and your art, 365 degrees. You know, the charcoal spit, the little kitchen set up there and the chefs and the clothesline with uh, the Attica Tom Gerard t-shirts on it. And... Um, 
there's so many elements to that right and mm. um and i want to create like somewhat of a riot you know like i want it to be like a punk thing as well you know and that's like skateboarding and punk music was so influential on me as a young man um and as a cook that was so influential on me creating and trying to stay true and being DIY and and just DIY and just making like just trying to make like good creative decisions based on that sort of ethos has always been what I've been about and and this is kind of another element of that too because it's like nobody would do this in a, in a restaurant of our caliber you know like nobody would take a three hat three star restaurant and give somebody that experience because it's just so far off the fine dining grid you know that's what I love about it as well because it really like stirs people you know people go out there and they're like oh my god like this is just totally not what I was expecting but I absolutely love it and like that totally like wig out out there right like Mm. you know when you get like a few tables out there like about eight o'clock there might be like 15 people out there 20 people out there and they start talking to each other and they have a beer or a glass of wine and they have their souvlaki that we make out there for them and they're listening to the music and they're studying all the art and they're like so happy you know and it comes back to that kind of same thing we talked about earlier you know you're just trying to make people happy but you also want to challenge them a little bit at the same time you know want to give them something else you know and um i think we've really succeeded with our collaboration in doing that you know mm. yeah I really wanted to be really bold with the art and tall as well. So, like, there's the fences of the backyard, but the art was way taller than the fences. Yeah, so awesome. And um, you couldn't, you almost can't see the sky. You know? Yeah, like that's... yeah, you're fully immersed in there. And, um, like, I showed some family and friends around there the other week, and they, um, even my brother commented, he said, oh, I thought it was going to be a couple of paintings hung on the wall. But it's like, no, <laughs> he, he loved it. It was great. Your brother was stoked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So if, uh, if people want to go and check it out, like uh, how do they go about it? So they need to go on to attica.com.au um, and reservations open on the first Wednesday at 9am of every month for three months in advance. Um, and it's important with those, if you want to come, that's, that's the, the time and the date that you need to know because the bookings go quickly. And um, so you get online, book in, and uh, you know, Tom's installation uh, will be there until about um, February, I reckon yeah cool i'll have to come and see it again in summer you will yeah, yeah it's even better in summer eh? no <laughs> don't need any heaters yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah it was uh one of the things that was a real challenge for me was making sure that everything was going to be weatherproof yes. for that long like, yeah oh, i spent more time priming wood than, than actually painting my artwork i think <laughs> you did a good job on that oh, though too yeah oh, yeah uh, being the son of a builder slash farmer i know a thing or two about that and you, you nailed it on that that front no thanks mate Alrighty, Ben, it's come to that time of the interview. I'm going to hit you with some uh, rapid-fire questions. I uh, hope you're ready. Um, here we go. Uh, name one creative person you uh, believe deserves more shine. We had a quick conversation about this earlier, and I, uh, I sort of struggle with this one a little bit because I do feel like uh, you know, it's everybody's responsibility to kind of find their own shine. It's not to say that you know that I don't put forward lots of people who I think you know are great who aren't getting recognition, but I think if you're you know if you're really determined to, to make a goal of it, then you need to just step up and do it yourself and not make any excuses. So I can't think of anyone off the top of my head, but my advice would be to anyone that feeling like that they, they haven't got any shine, just go after it. Like what are you waiting for? You know, it's up to you. Yeah, tough love from the a little bit of tough love. Yeah, yeah it's a chef game, <laughs> eh? 
Yeah. Um, what medium or ingredient uh, would you like to work with? Um, I'm always, you know, really fascinated, interested in music, and I think, you know, that there's that there's. I heard this idea, you know, about collaborating and and about combining these sort of three passions of cooking and art and music into into one form. Um, and it's just such a new idea that I wouldn't even really say it um, because it it's something I need to sleep on a little bit just just to wake up and say, is that a stupid idea, Ben, or is that a really good idea? Um, and we've done some similar things um, in the past. Hisco and I uh, and Attica did this really crazy event called the uh, Rip and Lee Riots in, um, in Sydney at this natural wine festival called Rootstock last year. And that was like a really immersive, really intense kind of uh, horror show uh, that we put on like a performance piece um, and it was heaps of fun and heaps of smoke machines and heaps of barbecues and very insanely make your ears bleed um, loud music so um, combining that in a more restrained way would be nice I think yeah and um, and what's one uh, one skill you wish you had um, I guess I feel like if I if I didn't have a skill um, that I, I always kind of learn the skills that I want but probably one regret was that I um, that I didn't learn an instrument musical instrument when I was a kid and um, yeah that'd probably be the only thing I mean you know that said though if I felt strongly enough about playing the guitar I guess you know I would go out and learn how to play the guitar yeah yeah I've, like it's weird you say that because I've always said that as well like I wish I could play a musical instrument and I used to play a trumpet when I was a kid I played it for like four years yeah but it's um, but I found that through uh turning my um, art career... I mean, my, my art was always, like, my side gig, but now it's my full-time gig mm-hmm. that I am starting to sort of, you know, get back into into music a lot yeah. more. And, like, you know, got some turntables and starting to play records a lot more and just I've see where that's going to take me, you know. But, but yeah, it is, it is interesting. I think um, if you create the, the space in your life, you can, you can start doing it. But you're starting to paint now as well. Yeah, I haven't done that for a long time. I haven't painted. And I've always kind of made art in small ways. Mm. But I haven't really painted with a brush since I was in high school. And like I, I kind of re- probably regret a little bit stopping. Um, but I, you know, I didn't feel like I could focus on both painting and, and cooking. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty demanding job you got. Yeah, it, is a bit. <laughs> it has been. I said I, I uh, worked out a while ago that I've averaged... Um, the retirement age hours of a person working, you know, thirty eight hours a week and retiring at age sixty five already. I've already, I've already worked those hours and I'm forty one. So, Jeez. got a way to go yet too, eh? So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so who's your favourite artist? Um, well, I've got many favourite artists, and we're surrounded. I'm surrounded by my favourite artists right now. I mean, you know, your painting is here, Tom. Um, Rico Rennie's paintings are here. Um, Cleon Peterson. But my favourite artist has to be my father, Rob Shuri. Um, we're, we're looking at one of his... Oh, there's a Silk Roy painting over there. Got to shout out the Silk Roy and the Hisco, actually. And the Jampy Desert Weavers. Um, just name drop um, my friends. Mm. But my father um, is my favourite artist because he's such an incredibly humble human being. He's a person that has an infinite amount of knowledge on many different subjects, and yet he never shows it. He should be the last person to speak up in a room if somebody was asking a question or telling a story or talking about something that was clear they didn't know about, my dad would probably definitely know about it, but he would never correct them. Um, and, his, and I love his art as well. So he paints um, wildlife and uh, landscapes of New Zealand in the bush um, and sort of war scenes. And uh, yeah, and 
yeah, so he's definitely number one. No, nah, good stuff. And um, and what advice would you give your younger self? Um, I have no regrets. Um, I have absolutely no regrets. Um, so I don't feel like I would give myself um any advice probably, but maybe if if you know young people ask me all the time for advice and uh, to them, you know, I would say it's a really long life. Don't be in such a rush. You know, um, slow down. Just keep working with integrity. Um, try not to destroy anybody. There's no need to. Um, and uh, and stay true to yourself. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Just don't let anybody, don't let anybody put you down to the point where it ruins your self-esteem mm. um, or your self-belief. You know, you can cop a bit of that sometimes, but just don't believe it. Mm. Yeah. Wise words. <laughs> <laughs> and um. And do you have a dream project you'd love to work on? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to, in all honesty, the dream project would be, you know, having a space where I could bring all my passions together, like cooking and the art and the making and the craft and the pottery, the ceramics and music and, you know, like a central, um, almost like a commune um, where all of these things could be coexisting. That would be, that would be my dream project. Yeah. We sort of got that space with Attica. But well, I, a, I, like I do, but it, yeah. but it, but I, but friends can't work. Like friends can come and work there temporarily, but friends couldn't have a space on site. You know, there's not enough room. Yeah, um, we have we use every square inch in that building, as you know. Yeah, and um, like where are you wanting to take your career? Like I know you've already oh. reached the highest of heights already, but uh, I just you know I just want to practice not going broke. Um, <laughs> that would be really good. Uh, I you know I want to continue to learn. I don't really think past the day ever. Like I'm not planning forward. Um, it's just not my style. So you know, you know, my my girlfriend asked me um, a couple of days ago, "Hey, um, you know, what are your hopes and dreams for next year?" And I'm like, "Oh, I was completely stumped. Eh? I hadn't, hadn't even thought about it. I just be happy, maybe. You know, that was it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, do you have any future plans, plans or projects in? I mean. I think, you know, when you own a very creative individual business, it's really wise at, a, at the age that I'm at, and anybody at this age, I think, is to try to build an asset that you can bank on in the future in some way. So for me, I'd love to own a bricks and mortar building to house Attica in. You know, we rent, um, as do many restaurants, um, as probably do many artists, but, you know, Attica's not going to be something that I can sell when I'm 65 because it's based around my personality. It's not a saleable asset. Just like in a lot of ways, you know, your your talent as an artist is not a saleable asset, you know. So I'm think I'm trying to think about how I could, you know, achieve the goal of owning the building the attic is in or owning another building. Mm-hmm. And then I have something at sixty five because I you know, when I'm done with Attic it will just close. You know, I won't sell it. So Yeah. And um and where's the best place for people to see you online? Uh just at Ben Shuri, uh B N S H E W R Y. Uh, on Instagram yep yeah probably or uh, the Attica website um, www.attica a-t-t-i-c-a dot com dot au and actually we just built a new website and there's quite a bit of art and animation on that website that's quite cool so yeah have a look cool well uh, thanks for taking the time to uh, sit down and have a chat thanks Tom absolute pleasure ah no worries